The seminary I attended, the Thomas Sarkings School for the Ministry, was the Unitarian Universalist School in a consortium of seminaries. They were both Protestant and Catholic seminaries in that group, but more unusually, there was a school connected with the Buddhist Church in America. There was a group that had adopted Buddhism to an American form that was organized as a church that held Sunday morning services. The professor of the class I took at that Buddhist seminary told us one day that he was a member of an academic organization of scholars of religion, and that to cause thinking, and that's what he figured academics should do, to cause thinking, every once in a while he would propose reorganizing the part of the organization he belonged to. He was an expert in the Buddhist scriptures, and he suggested that religious scholars should reorganize themselves so that all of the experts in the various scriptures, the Buddhist scriptures, the Hindu scriptures, the Quran of Islam, the Bible, and anyone else, should all be a part of the same professional subgroup. His professor never... His Proposal never went anywhere, of course. He explained that in this country, at least, it would be possible to have a group of scripture scholars that included everyone except the Bible scholars, but that they would never agree to treating the Bible as if it were the same as other scriptures. For the most part, Bible scholars regarded the Bible as the real scripture, the at least in some way actually true scripture as opposed to all of the others. Basically, I want you to get to thinking about this professor's idea this morning, and I want to try and convey the subtlety of what he was arguing for. You see, he wasn't proposing that all scriptures be dismissed just as different collections of myths, of untrue things. He was proposing instead that scholars approach all scriptures with the same respect for their truth, a respect that would involve stepping back from the claim that any one scripture was literally true as history or as a report of actual observed events, and into an appreciation of the truth that each of the holy books contained, into an appreciation that scripture was worthy for the truth it contains about the world as it might be. This, I think, would be an appreciation that could come from Northrop Fry's advice about how to listen to stories, about suspending judgment regarding parts of the story in order to at first respond to it as a whole. It would be using the power of detachment to develop tolerance and then appreciation, respect for the possibilities that a story presents. It's not that Bible scholars don't know about this sort of thing. The Oxford Companion to the Bible, for example, has Leland Riken write, it is a truism that whereas history tells us what happened, literature, literature tells us what happens. Literature portrays universal human experience, and as a result, doesn't go out of date. 
The literary approach to the Bible is therefore interested in the universal, always recognizable human experiences that are portrayed. In the Bible, we see ourselves, not only characters and events from the past. Adam and Jacob, David and Ruth, are paradigms of the human condition, as well as figures in a historical narrative. Because biblical literature embodies its meaning in characters, events, and images, it communicates by indirectness. It gives us examples rather than precepts. The result is that literature puts a greater burden of interpretation on a reader than straightforward expository prose. Even such a simple literary form as a metaphor, as God is light, requires a reader to interpret how one thing is like another and how it is not like as well. Northrop Fry argues that the Bible is not primarily literature, but that it expresses itself using literary means and that it has therefore deeply affected subsequent Western literature. He begins by arguing that we human beings don't live in an utterly direct experience of the universe the way animals must, but rather we experience the world around us through a set of cultural assumptions and beliefs, most of which we hold unconsciously. We can sometimes recognize those, those assumptions in literature and in art, but often they come to us with our very language and shared culture as a given, so that it's hard to recognize them. Fry admits there's even a deep and deeper level of common human psychology that lets us understand things cross-culturally. But on the whole, we tend not to recognize this deeper level of common human inheritance, but deal in the world in terms of our own cultural conditioning. Criticism, he argues, is the conscious organizing of a cultural tradition. It lifts it up so that we can see it's there one of its practical functions is to make us aware of how we've been taught to think, to understand the way the world is. He asserts the Bible is clearly a major element in our own imaginative tradition, whatever we may think or believe about it. The Bible is one of the givens that people in a Western culture have as part of their cultural background. So even if you regard yourself as a non-believer in the Bible, a non-believer in the religious teachings of Christianity or Judaism, some part of how you see the world has been shaped by the existence of the Bible and how it told its story. For example, the Bible itself is set forth with a beginning and an end. The first book, the book of Genesis, starts within the beginning, and the last book, Revelation, presents a picture of the end of the world. In the book of Isaiah, God is said to claim to be the first and the last, to be the creator and the judge. So our culture tends to look at history as a timeline that has a beginning point and moves not in a circle, 
but in a linear fashion towards some end or at least a goal. Biblical culture assumes one life with a beginning and then a judgment at the end, while Hindu-inspired cultures, for example, tend to assume that the universe operates in long cycles, that things go around, come around, and happen again and again. Souls are born again and again in different forms in the Hindu way of thinking about the world. In addition to seeing time as a line instead of as a cycle or a circle, the Bible tends to emphasize repentance and the need for correct belief, perhaps more than other traditions where one's actions rather than one's confessions determine what will happen next. In the Hindu system, one doesn't necessarily have to confess one's belief in anything. The cycle of rebirth will happen, and you will be rewarded or punished, born into one situation or another, based on how you had lived your life. Some of the worldviews advanced by the Bible are in conflict with other parts of our Western tradition. The Bible is at best ambivalent about human kings. David is both beloved of God and a major sinner. Solomon is both the wisest of men and someone who is shown to go wrong, being overly influenced by his foreign wives and by worldly concerns for wealth and power. While wealth brings many advantages in our real world, the Bible is suspicious of wealth and of the wealthy, providing numerous teachings about how difficult it is for a rich person to be a good person, to be a person who will be rewarded in the next life. Thus, while much of our culture points us toward the practical desire for wealth, there are many biblical influences that help create a climate of concern for justice. The prophetic tradition of the Bible even creates a climate for questioning the Bible itself, for questioning the ostensible rules of religion, as the prophets insist that God prefers justice to sacrifices and say things like, the last shall be first. The Bible creates a climate where we tend to speak of snakes in connection with evil, a snake in the grass. While in many traditions, snakes are good. Snakes eat things like rats that carry diseases and that compete with humans for food. Different way of looking at the world. The Bible... and that God is a kind of father to us all. All of this is to say that the worldviews that the Bible has provided for our culture aren't uniformly to be condemned or praised, but rather simply recognized so that we notice what's been given us and what at least some of the other possibilities might be, so that we move out of the blind assumption that we have all the truth and into an ability to learn more 
and to grow both wiser and kinder. UU minister Bill Gardner says, we all have two religions, the religion we talk about and the religion we live. It's our task to make the difference between the two as small as possible. Fry's version of this idea argues that there's a professed belief, the what we say we are, and the actual belief, how we act. And he observes that the fact that there's often a difference between the two is most likely usually a matter of human weakness, our fallibility. Fry recalls that even the Apostle Paul says that he did not always act the way his professed faith said that he should. Fry goes on to argue, though, that professed belief in itself is instinctively aggressive. Take the example of a Spaniard and a Turk facing one another at the famous Battle of Lepanto. Neither knows the first thing about the other man's religion, but each is convinced that it is utterly and damnably wrong and would be ready to fight and die for that conviction. We may consider this only an example of Swift's remark that men have just enough religion to hate, but not enough for love. But even on a high level of integrity, where theory and practice, where professed and lived religion come together, faith is still militant, still something to be symbolized, as Paul does, by armor and weapons. So think of that biblical image that has come to us. The culture of the Bible has conditioned us to think of religion as something that's oppositional, something to be set against other ideas of religion, other ways of doing religion. Biblical religion conditions us to see life often as a kind of battlefield where the forces of good struggle against the forces of evil. Conditions us to see that we have to participate in that struggle. To think that there is a right religion and then that all the rest is wrong. A different worldview is possible. For example, the idea that everybody has their own individual faith, which has part of the truth, but that nobody, no group of people even, has the whole truth. Nobody has a truth that's more complete or even more important than anybody else's. You couldn't think about such a world. We're not taught as a background assumption to do that. Fry goes on saying that professed faith strives to become free of doubt, just as a soldier in battle abolishes from his mind all question of the justice of his country's cause. Structures of faith are normally structures of unity and integration and hence reflect back to us the finiteness of the human mind. A human theological system that assigns an unconscionable number of people to hell merely to keep God's actions logically consistent can hardly deal with a God who can remind Jonah with delicate irony that sometimes inconsistency might be a better principle. And you remember that God tells Jonah to go preach to the Ninevites and Jonah doesn't want to do it. Eventually he gets forced into it. And the Ninevites repent. The Ninevites say, yeah, you're right. We're going to change. Ticks Jonah off. He goes off and sulks. I've told you this story recently. 
God suggests that, you know, giving people a second chance, not just following through, well, you did this, so the punishment has got to follow automatically, but allowing even the Ninevites to, to change the way they are going about life, inconsistent as it may seem, is the better way. Fry argues that a being that humans pin down to having to follow a set of rules, a being that humans can explain away, isn't the unlimited God worthy of human regard. Similarly, worship of the rules that some people derive from the Bible is a kind of idolatry that substitutes the rules for the ongoing process that calls us to continue to wrestle with paradox rather than limit God to a human scale. Fry was not only a literary critic, but an ordained minister in the United Church of Canada. So Johann Atkin tells us that Fry worked to move his church beyond those who demanded absolute certainties, telling them that humans should not pretend to know what nobody actually knows. Telling them that humans simply cannot know the full mind of an infinite, that is, an unlimited God. Fry is often said to have remarked that when one person says, you must believe in God, what they really mean is, you must believe in what I mean by God. Atkin explains, as Fry sees it, the trickster God who makes deals and delights in bears eating children. And that's one of the ugly stories in the Bible. This trickster God is a product of the demonic side of human invention. While the God of love who can redeem time and our puny preoccupations is the God of the human imagination reaching as far as it can go. Fry does not hide from himself or his church the horrors of the church's history of terror, intolerance, and hatred, but sees it as a history we must outgrow. He said, the real reformation toward a more mature society of individualized Christians was betrayed by the Protestants as well as opposed by the Catholics. What he means is, religious organizations are much more bound than the better secular ones to what I, Fry, call the primitive form of society, the supremacy of social authority over the individual. It frequently appears to be practically an element of faith that the interests and reputations of the church as a social unit must take precedence over the welfare of individuals within it perhaps limited by the Bible's assumptions of a tribal worldview of one people set against another people, we have wound up with religions that claim that those who follow the rules and confess to whatever is demanded by orthodoxy will be saved, while everyone else, no matter how well they lived, will be damned. Fox or Fry argues that a Christianity that was no longer crippled by notions of heresy, infallibility, or exclusiveness is what we need. 
He says, when we Christians encounter a vision quite different from our own in, say, a Buddhist, a Jew, a Confucian, an atheist, or whatever, there can still be what is called dialogue and mutual understanding based on a sense that there's plenty of room in the mind of God for us both. And he argues all faith is founded on good faith. And where there is good faith on both sides, there is the presence of God. Fry ultimately argues it's a linguistic fallacy to claim that the Bible could be literally true. To the extent that we mean descriptively accurate by the phrase literally true, Fry argues that only a relatively modern scientific or historical presentation can be literally true, and that it took a long time in human history before we developed that capacity for descriptive accuracy. We needed the appropriate technical apparatus in science. We needed the appropriate techniques of historiography, techniques involving the evaluation of documents in archaeology, for example, to present descriptive truth. Fry identifies religious claims to literal truth as rhetoric, that is, as being argumentation, seeking conversion, but not opening to dialogue. Fry urges us to read the Bible using our capacity for critical thought, such that we see movement in the Bible stories rather than static, supposed perfection. It's not that everything that happens in the Bible is true and good, but rather that the Bible models for us a way of moving towards greater self-awareness. Fry argues, every one of us is defined by our social conditioning. But while our conditioning defines us, it also limits, even imprisons us. Awareness of the limitations built into being who and what we are is one of the central elements of education, and in particular, religious education. Fry continues, tells how Marxist insights helped us to see how class conditioning influenced our views of how things ought to be, of how we thought the world was. Tells how Freudian insights helped us become aware of the influence of our unconscious minds. Tells us that more recently, we've become aware of how racism and sexism and our human arrogance with respect to the natural environment, awareness of those stances give us a new way of seeing and the ability to rethink old judgments. He argues, in a religious context, how Bernard of Clairvaux, a 12th century monk, was regarded in his time as one of the greatest saints of that time. But Fry says, by the standards of contemporary awareness, by our time, anyone who puts so much time and energy into preaching a crusade would not be a saint of all, no matter how intense his spiritual life, no matter how numerous his miracles, because we know that there may be just wars, but not holy wars, because the good side is never holy, and the bad side is always still human. 
we learn and become more aware by stepping out of our old frames and we can see things differently. Religion is thus not a set of givens revealed once and for all in a set of rules, but is rather a process of moving into more and more awareness of who we are and who we're called to be. And you can find this in the Bible. Take the popular example here of the Good Samaritan. Jesus is asked by an expert in the law what the law required he do in order to have eternal life. Jesus doesn't answer, but asks what the Pharisee understands the Scriptures to say. And the man replies, the Scriptures say, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind. They also say, Love your neighbor as you love yourself. Jesus agrees, says if the man does this, he'll have eternal life. But the man asks the lawyer's question. He says, define your terms. Tell me, who is my neighbor? And Jesus, instead of giving a definition, instead of giving a neighbor-finding rule, tells the story of the Good Samaritan, a story that broke open the cultural assumptions of that time. Jews would have expected the people who walked by to be the good people because they were Jewish, because they held religious positions connected with the temple. The Samaritan would have been expected to be the unneighborly person because he was a member of a different tribe that existed in continuing conflict with the Jews. But the story showed it wasn't the external identity of a person that made him or her a neighbor, but how they treated their fellow human being. The lawyer who had been conditioned to look for and to follow the rules of the Bible was taught by the story not to look at whether rules were being followed, but at how people were being treated. It's worth noting that no one claims this story found in Luke is something that's literally true. No one claims that it recounts actual events involving a specific human being who fell in among particular thieves and that there was another specific Samaritan who actually helped. But it's a story with its own kind of truth about it, not a literal truth of, of history, but a human truth still recognizable to us some 2,000 years after it was apparently first told. The great Unitarian preacher Theodore Parker once argued that the truth of what really matters in Christianity no more depends on the existence of an historical Jesus than the truth of Euclidean geometry depends upon the historical existence of the man Euclid. What matters in Christianity, what matters in the Bible, is not whether the things reported actually happened as they're described, but whether the stories call us and others into more aware, more noble, more loving, more generous, more courageous, more virtuous lives. The, batter, the Bible matters to the extent that it can call us, inspire us, transform us into being more than we would be without it. And I think there are many parts of the Bible that, properly appreciated, can do that. Not taken as limiting rules, but as inspiring stories 
They help us step out of our old, narrow selves and into a new and better way of being in the world. I think the Bible should not be taken literally, but can beneficially be taken seriously and wrestled with. Part of taking it seriously involves coming to terms with how much it's influenced our culture and how we see the world. Part of taking it seriously involves learning from the stories how to step out of old ways into new ones. UU Minister John Haynes Holmes put it this way, When I'm asked if I believe in God, I'm either impatient or amused and frequently decline to reply. All I know, all I want to know is that I have found in my relations with my fellows and in my glad beholding of the universe a reality of truth, goodness, and beauty. And what I'm trying to make my life as best I can is a dedication to this reality. When I'm in the thinking mood, I try to be rigorously rational and thus not to go one step further in my thoughts and language than my reason can take me. I then become uncertain as to whether I or anyone can assert much about God. When, however, in preaching or in prayer, in some high moment of inner communion or of profound experience with life among my fellows, I feel the pulse of emotion suddenly beating in my heart and I'm lifted up as though on some sweeping tide that is more than the sluggish current of my ordinary days. Then I find it easy to speak as the poets speak and cry, as so many of them do, to God. But mind you, when I say God, it is poetry and not theology. Nothing that any theologian ever wrote about God has helped me much. But everything the poets have written about flowers and birds and skies and seas and the saviors of the race and God whoever that may be, has at one time or another reached my soul. More and more as I grow older, I live in the lovely thought of these seers and prophets. The theologians gather dust upon the shelves of my library, but the poets are stained with my fingers and blotted with my tears. I never seem so near truth as when I care not what I think or believe but only with these masters of inner vision would live forever. The Bible contains stories and poetry and its own truth that takes us beyond reason, but not necessarily beyond what can be helpful and true in its own way. The question for me is not whether the Bible is literally true, but whether it still has the power to challenge, to inspire, to uplift. The purpose of religion, I think, is to open us to the possibilities of more beyond our narrow self-interest and beyond the flatness of the day-to-day -day world, of more meaning, more wonder. I do not find the dogmas and creeds and dogmatic theology derived from the Bible to be of use to me, but I can find the stories and images worth struggling with, worth playing with, worth encountering with an open mind. I invite you to turn to our closing song, number 326.
Let all the beauty we have known Please rise as you're willing and able to sing.